right, we are back, uh, and we are in Acts 13, and which we're about verse 13, I believe, because we worked away, our way a little bit into Acts 13 from last week. Uh, and let's actually start with prayer, and then we'll start reading. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. O Christ our God, be with us as we read about your holy apostles in the early church, about your Holy Spirit as it moved uh, those men and women of old and how they witnessed to your life, your teachings, your resurrection, and the power of your Holy Spirit in their lives. May we also be granted that same spirit uh, through the intercessions of all the holy apostles and of all thy saints. Have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. 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 So, read. Do you mind starting reading this to this evening? Be happy to. How far do you want me to go? Let's see here. I'm trying to move this. There we go. Let's let's do first 13 through 25. Okay. <clears throat> now Paul and his company set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they passed on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you that fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he bore with them in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance for about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do, my, who will do all my will. Of this man's posterity, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had preached a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So at the beginning of this chapter, uh, we saw the setting apart of Barnabas and Paul. Uh, after worshiping the Lord and fasting, uh, the church at Antioch uh, hears the, uh, the Holy Spirit saying to set a part Barnabas and Saul and after they fasted and prayed they commissioned them to send them off uh, and then we encountered I'm going to scroll up a little bit an interesting episode of another magician uh, in Cyprus and now um, we have come to another town where they have continued their journey they're being set out by the church of Antioch and they are uh, Antioch of Basidia. And it gets a little confusing 
And I'm sure <laughs> most of you know the ancient world had many cities that had the same name, right? There's multiple Caesareas, there's multiple Alexandrias, there's, and there's obvious reasons for this because, well, Caesarea, Caesar, Alexandria, Alexander, um, as different waves of conquerors or um, Caesars or generals or, you know, et cetera, Roman or Greco-Roman leadership, they name their cities the same names. So we're in a different Antioch than the Antioch that we started out. Um, and we have Paul doing something that uh, is key to a lot of the early churches um, spreading of the gospel. Where does Paul go to? The synagogue. The synagogue. Why would he go to the synagogue? Where else would you go? <laughs> Probably because he's a Jew. Yeah. So he goes to the synagogue. Uh, they have, I think it's interesting to note in verse 15, the reading of the law and the prophets. So there was a particular set reading, uh, which reminds me of in the Gospel of Luke, where our Lord is in attending synagogue and they have the particular reading uh, from Isaiah that he then gets up and then teaches or preaches on. And we have here, obviously, there must have been something about Paul that uh, the rulers of the synagogue want, you know, here's a, a visiting person and they want to hear a word of exhortation. So I'm sure Paul with a, a little bit of uh, butterflies in his belly or maybe not, uh, stands up and he goes for it. What do you, is there anything particular about uh, the beginning of his sermon here uh, that jumps out to you? Well, there appear to be Gentiles in the in the audience, right? What what makes you say that, Reed? Where he addresses men of Israel and you that fear God. Yes. And wasn't this a technical term for Gentiles who had an interest in Judaism and came to the services? They were called God-fearers? Yes. Right. Uh, we encounter this, oh, what's his name? Is it Cornelius? Uh, the righteous Gentile who was remembered for almsgiving. That's you. Um, right. Yeah. He, he would qualify or he, he would be in that uh, group of the God-fearers. Uh, who would have attended synagogue and believed in the God of Israel, but they weren't fully um, accepted as men of Israel in the same way. I think David's grandchildren are around. <laughs> yeah, they are. Good. It's nice to hear children. Oh, and to see them. <laughs> what, what do you all make of... Um, but uh, he's he's doing a kind of salvation history here, right? Right. Um, he doesn't start with Abraham. He mentions Abraham later. We haven't read it yet. Um, but he starts with uh, Exodus, right? With Moses and the leading out of Egypt. Yeah. Um, the uplifted arm, of course, is familiar language from the Psalms and from um, uh the way in which we talk about God having saved with uh, his strong right arm, but also I think we could uh, see uplifted arm 
being Moses, also had his arms lifted up physically and held there. And the church actually, in our hymnody around the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, brings this up and how Moses was in a cruciform, you know, having his hands held up for the Exodus. Um, there's something about Paul here that he's really interested in time. He keeps noting how long these things happened. So uh, they are in the wilderness for 40 years. They have received the land of Canaan and they're there for about 450 years. They have judges and then Samuel the prophet who we actually commemorate, remember uh, today as in tomorrow. It's uh, so who we just commemorated here uh, and sang for Vespers. Um, then we have, we, we're kind of seeing Paul naming mm, many of the institutions of Israel, uh, judges, prophets, a king, uh, and a specific um, noting of David. Uh, and I think it's interesting that he notes um, specifically uh, of David that he was a man after God's own heart who will do his will. Um, and it's of this line of David that Paul underlines uh, that Jesus comes from. This is, of course, exactly what Jewish messianic expectation is, is that the son of David, the house of David, would be where the Messiah would come from. Um, why do you think he, Paul mentions John the Baptist here? Of what importance, why, why would he, is there a reason why he would need to name John the Baptist? John the Baptist was well known, was he not? Yes. Reed, I can tell you're, you're right on the edge of it. Well, I, I, my first thought was exactly what David just said, that he was well known. And um, I mean, of course, he was the one who did testify about Christ. But, you know, the Gospels say that all the people regarded John as a prophet. And so if he was well known and highly regarded as a prophet or widely regarded as a prophet, then this would carry some weight. I think it also has to do with the fact that we encounter here in the book of Acts, which I don't believe we have encountered yet, have we? I think we talked about this, but we haven't encountered it yet. Um, that they are still disciples of John going around. And so I think, uh, and this comes up in a lot oh. of uh, scholarly works on the Gospels as well, of like, why does the Gospel of John spend so much time on John? Like, why, like, yeah, he is the forerunner. Like, of course, he fits in. But some of the uh, scholarship I've read, it's also because when you're writing these things, I mean, we still have to this day, do we not, those who follow John the Baptist. I forget what they call themselves. But in Iraq, there was there is a group <laughs> that still follows and traces things back to John the Baptist. So... Um, I think there is a specific need that Paul feels uh, to update folks. <laughs> you know, they don't, they're not checking their Facebook feed to see what happened in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they need to hear that John, you know, that he's going to witness to the fact that John was a forerunner 
and that somebody else is coming and the sandals of whose feet he was unworthy to tie, untie. Is there any other aspects of um, the way in which he outlines this kind of short salvation history here that jumps out to you or? Well, this reminds me just a bit of Stephen's uh, answer before the, was it the Sanhedrin he was before? Yeah. Where essentially he gives them a history lesson. Why um, do you think that, why, I mean, like, these people obviously know this history, right? Right. It makes me feel better about preaching, right? Because you usually say the same things. <laughs> I mean, he's preaching, but I think there is something about this of kind of building a case probably and showing dot to dot to dot. Uh, and when we were reading the Stephen homily uh, sermon, it was very much all bound up still with temple things and what was going on with temple and Moses. And he makes his case that way. Um, Paul here seems to be very concerned um, with, um, and it may have to do with the, pro he, I find it interesting that it doesn't spend a lot. There's a lot of things that you could, there's no temple reference here. Now that might be because they're not in Jerusalem, so he doesn't feel like, and the the what is the anger there or the confusion or what wouldn't be an issue about uh, the temple. Uh, he seems to be very much uh, concerned with uh, David because I think if you if you read the the names that he's dropping, he is dropping very specific. He doesn't mention Moses. He doesn't mention Joshua. He doesn't mention why would he mention Samuel? I almost wonder if it's because he's emphasizing that, oh wait, Samuel, sorry, I was thinking of Saul. Sorry, I was answering the wrong question. Well, you know, the I, interesting I, think thing Saul, I think Samuel, Saul, and David, there's a reason why those three are. Well, of course, Samuel is a point of transition. Uh-huh. What did he transition? Wait a minute, now I'm wanting to back up and look at more. Uh, 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 he chose his fathers, came out of the land of Israel. When I ask these questions, they are they they are really me wondering out loud. That it's not that I have a pretty, pretty oh, Okay, okay, okay. But but, but I mean, but I mean, Sam, Samuel uh, and Samuel has always intrigued me. Yeah. Uh, because it's such an important part. Of, it's such an important transition where the people of Israel go from having judges to having a king what is a and, synagogue like what is a synagogue like yeah what, it, what there's no king of a synagogue is there no well no there's a synagogue ruler right i think there's yeah. somebody in charge yeah i think what david where you're going to like there's a transition from the prophets and the judges into this king yeah, that that's, 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 yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, and then rolling forward, we've got Saul for 40 years, and then we've got David, who's their king, and then after David, uh, and, and then after David, you've got Jesus, and so you've got another transition. With John, John is uh, there as a, a transition, it's, it's, too. 
Yeah. Kind of like Saul is for David. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so I think he's kind of, uh, this is kind of nice. It's a good argument. Uh, I, I, what he's, what he's laying the foundation for here is, is that this Jesus isn't something we're just coming up with out of whole cloth. Right. And in fact, it's embedded in the tradition and you can find it in the tradition uh, back to the time of Moses. And there's right. a tr transition from uh, Moses to Judges and from Judges to Kings and, you know, and now from uh, Kings to Jesus. It's all, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just part of the growth of, of, of the nation of Israel. Nice job, Paul. <laughs> I also had a thought. Uh, could it also be uh, like emphasizing that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophet, priest, and king in one person as well? I like that. I always like the prophet, priest, and king. I'm working on a chapter for the OCA Catechism in the Old Testament right now, and I'm trying to do prophet, priest, and king as my kind of, because there's a lot of material. I don't know if you've seen how big the Old Testament is, but there's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> I'm trying to pick out highlights. Yeah. Uh, and I think what Paul is doing in his highlight is very specific to his <laughs> argument. And it's making me wonder, part of the reason why I was asking you, David, about synagogues and king things is it seems like Israel is very specifically at a time of being without a king. And they are right. ruled by groups of men, synagogues, slash the Sanhedrin and high priest, but then the, the Romans. And I think there is something about introducing uh, a king, uh, the house of David, to uh, folks who um, are looking for a king, but they don't have a king. So I think focusing on that house of David, uh, I think we'll also see as we go on, there's a reason why he's focused on David. So we yeah. should... Go ahead and start reading a few more verses because that might also help us synthesize. Who would like to read the next section? Reed, do you want to keep reading some? I'm happy to. All right. Will you read? Let me see here. Read 26 through 43, and I'll move it down just a little bit when we get to 42, 43. Okay. Thank you. Brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you that fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Though they could charge him with nothing deserving death, yet they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way. 
I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, Thou wilt not let thy holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the counsel of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brethren, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him every one that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest there come upon you what is said in the prophets. Behold, you scoffers, and wonder, and perish. For I do a deed in your days, a deed you will never believe, even if one declares it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Lots of fascinating stuff going on here. So we encounter uh, Abraham being invoked, even though before Abraham was not invoked, nor was Moses. But we started with um, Samuel. I mean, we talk about Exodus, but we don't specifically reference Moses. Um, so we have this very uh, specific shift to a message of salvation. I want us to just go line by line because there's a lot of, um, I have a lot of interest in the way Paul phrases these things. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. There is a definite um, tie of this sermon to the first sermon of the book of Acts. Um, that being that there is in Jesus Christ, uh, in not just in his death, but in the actual condemning of Jerusalem and the rulers of Jesus, uh, kind of the whole say I'll just say Holy Week, right? Like there's something about the entirety of Holy Week. I would say obviously the entire life of Christ, etc., uh, even up into the whole economy of salvation that you'll find in the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, but I think he's specifically focusing on here um, what has occurred in Jerusalem. Uh, I do find it interesting. I don't know if you all think there's anything to this of why. You know, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have it very clearly that Jesus proclaims to them the truth uh, that's found in Moses and the prophets, um, and even in the Psalms, that there, there's an interpretation or understanding of all of the kind of um, genres, as it were, of uh, Hebrew Scripture fulfill. Paul seems to be very specifically here talking about the utterances of the prophets. Do you think there's any particular reason for that? Well, it seems like later when he's been arrested and is having to defend himself, especially before the Jews, he emphasizes again and again that he's just believing what the Jewish people have always hoped for, that this is the fulfillment of their scriptures. There's nothing foreign about this. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the reason why he's focused on the prophets here is because he's focused on, um, well, 
Who would have thought the uh, Psalter uh, qualifies as prophetic literature? If I just came out of nowhere, nowhere and said, are the Psalms or the Psalter, are they prophetic literature? What's your answer? Well, no. Oh. I mean, David's briefly. being honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm being... I, I, do you know how the Orthodox Church you want, you, you, want, you want you, uh, Father, do you want to know about then or now? <laughs> uh, because I've read the Psalms for so many years, and 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 I I used to teach this stuff, uh, yeah. in, in in Sunday school and stuff, and the Psalms are poetry. You know, there's a uh, law, history, poetry, prophets. You know, that's how you divide the Old Testament: law, history, poetry, prophets. And and so the Psalms are always part of poetry, but now. Uh, it's hard for me to read the Psalms and not to see Jesus. Jesus is all over the place. He's, he's, he's constantly showing up in the Psalms. So to me, they are now quite prophetic. But, but, yes. but, uh, How do we in the church refer to uh, David? He's David the prophet. He's the oh, prophet David. and the king, right? Oh, is he called a prophet? Oh, he is yeah. called a prophet, isn't he? Yes, he is. Hmm. Because, I mean, the second psalm, if you're going to look at passages in the Old Testament that are oh, yeah. privileged passages, Psalm 2 is incredibly important. If you don't, and this is kind of challenging, because I, I don't have Psalm 2 memorized, but if you don't know the basic outline of Psalm 2, that's something that you should commit to some kind of memory, because it is such an important... Um, psalm about the king and the dialogue about making a king out of the people the people reject him but god has placed his holy one on his hill and he's going to rule with an iron rod etc um he laughs them to scorn i believe is how the king james uh puts it um the second psalm here i think part of the reason why paul talks this way is because he knows the exegesis that he's going to lay out. The whole argument of Paul is exegesis, right? Yeah. In the same way that Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is exegesis, Paul's, um, that the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this is just a basic assumption here about the fulfillment of scripture in Jesus Christ, that if you don't have that down, Christianity unravels completely. Um you have to have an understanding. I mean, we, this is enshrined in the creed because it reflects Christian faith um, that uh, the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets, uh, that there is a fulfillment of Scripture according to the Scriptures, uh, that everything that happened to Jesus Christ. Um, one of my, uh, as a Protestant, one of my favorite uh, hymnist, hymnographers was Isaac Watts. Yeah. Because he basically did to the Psalms, like he Christianized every single Psalm and saw Christ in every one of them, uh, like very Orthodox view. Uh, so, uh, of course, I became one later. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think most of the traditional, if you were to read Calvin and Luther and those, um, you're very much going to, uh, they're going to do the same things. Because yeah. they're still they're still very much uh, 
connected to the the trunk of Christendom, and I don't mean Christendom as in like geopolitical stuff. I mean Christendom as like the tradition. Um, but over time, as the historical critical method arises in these things, then you start, you know, the Psalms are, you know, like a hymnal. Uh, they are of the temple, but the key. Uh, and I'm going to suggest a book here. Father Patrick Reardon, uh, Henry Reardon's book on Christ in the Psalms. Uh, I would highly suggest that book. It's approachable. It's not, you know, esoteric academic stuff. Uh, but it's very learned at the same time. That's how It's Reardon. And he does a very good, masterful job of explicating the Psalms and how to read them. Especially the first few Psalms. Um, Jesus is the whole key, the point, fulfillment. Uh, why do we sing on Saturday evenings, blessed is the man? Who is the blessed man of Psalm 1? Christ, right? And then like, who is it's like Psalm a two? good guess to I, I, All these, the, the answer is probably going to be Jesus. So... <laughs> Or it's a mystery. Oh, <laughs> but a boom. All right. Why do you think it's important for Paul uh, to emphasize the innocence of Jesus? Well, he was a man condemned by the Jewish authorities and the Roman and, Romans and executed. On the face of it, that doesn't look good. No. I think it's tied up with the the fulfillment things, right? Um, if we're going to stick with the Psalms, um, the whole, uh, I believe it's Psalm 22, if I remember off the top of my head, or is it Psalm 20, all about the crucifixion, the bulls, uh, and the dividing of my garment, all of these things. There is something about uh, him also being the innocent one, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah, but also of the Psalms, um, that Jesus fulfills things because others have to fulfill it for him, right? It's not that Jesus comes through and just kind of strong arms himself uh, into sal salvation for us, but the verse 29 is very specific. They had fulfilled all that was written of him. Then they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb. Uh, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Side note, this isn't, that's not Paul. Is that Paul? No. What do you mean? What do you mean? Verse 31, is he talking about himself? Many days Jesus appeared to those who came up with him. Oh, no, 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 no. But he is the one in verse 32 bringing the good news that God had promised to the fathers. And that we, is yeah, Paul is we. Yes. Yeah. So how, how, what do you, when you read in Psalm 2, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. What do you think of that verse? And how is Paul using that verse here? Should I be more specific? 
Where do we usually associate this verse in verse in verse 33? If thou art my son to get today, I've forgotten thee. The transfiguration or the baptism of Christ? Here he doesn't seem to be talking about either of those. I specifically think of Theophany today that I have thou art my son to the today I've begotten thee the voice of the Father. But that's not his argument here. He's tied this to the resurrection, right? Right. So what? What is that different? Why is is why is our? Could that verse be about both of those events? The psalm says, "The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession." Right. So at the at the theophany at the baptism of our Lord, he says this, yeah. and Paul is talking about this in in conjunction with resurrection. Do you see connections there? Do you see this is just a little different? Paul's just doing a different kind of exegesis, or am I being opaque? Yes. Um. <laughs> Are you possibly referring to verse 6 in Psalm 2 of, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill? Like, is that, are, are we talking about maybe a... Well, so, Erica, can you read all Psalm 2, or at least the first few verses? Sure. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, hold on a second. Okay. I need to pull up Psalm 2 as well because I... So there's a kind of dialogue that's happening here between the Father and the Son in Psalm 2. You have... Oh, let's see here. i got to pull this up. He, I, so verse 7, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. There's a shift in the voice. So at the beginning, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord has, set, has them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath. Then verse 7 says, verse 6, the one who sits in the heavens, I have set my king on Zion. Then verse 7 says, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So you have right. basically kind of a, a dialogue and Irenaeus, I believe, picks up on this very specifically. You have a dialogue between the Father and the Son. And my point in the multivalence of Scripture, I don't think that I was pointing at, is there some kind, is there something wrong with Paul's exegesis um, or with the writers? One, uh, this, thou art my son today, I have begotten these already associated with the baptism. Paul is not talking about the baptism of our Lord. He's talking about the resurrection. 
So how does that function in early Christianity if that verse is being used in two different ways? What I would say is they're functioning in two in two different valences, but they're functioning in the exact same way. It's basically the Messiah. And the language of Psalm 2 is about the Messiah. For Paul, he's applying this specifically to a resurrection argument, which continues in 34 and 35, right? Which we'll talk about in just a second. But theophany, what is, how does theophany, what are the themes that I think we can rely even on the festival or even not scripture, but also as the church and the festival nature of theophany has underlined? Theophany is very possible, right? Theophany is very much uh, a kind of a death, burial, and resurrection in miniature at the beginning of his ministry uh, as his, um, I mean, Theophany is one of my favorite feasts of the church outside of Pascha. Um, it very much underlines uh, Christ as the warrior king who's going to uh, defeat all of the enemies and, you know, raise up uh, Adam and Eve uh, or humanity out of that chaos in his body. So, I think what's going on with Thou Art My Son Today, I've begotten the, what is being stated uh, at his baptism is still the truth in his resurrection. It's just another uh, aspect of how his messiahship is being played out in the world. Does that make sense? So from an eternal point of view, the son is always the son. Today, I think, it, today is not a reference to when he was baptized or when he was resurrected. It is an eternal begotting, begetting, sorry, not a begotting. <laughs> an eternal begetting that is reflected in the baptism and the theophany of baptism. And by theophany, I'm underlining the, the, um, the actual revelation of theophany and what is revealed in the resurrection, that he is the servant uh, of the Father, and through the power of the Holy Spirit is raised by the Father because he is the Son, and he is the only begotten of the Father. Anyways, I'm probably making something more complicated than it is, but I find it fascinating that Paul's, the way he's setting up this argument is to use the same passage that is already associated with the baptism, but for Paul, he's got it around, uh, associated with the resurrection. And now my dissertation is done. <laughs> well, I mean, it would kind of make sense because, as you say, I mean, in Theophany, Christ goes down into the water as into death. He r rises from it as in the resurrection. He sanctifies the waters so that they become life-giving for us. He sanctifies death. I don't know if that's quite the right way to say it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So that it becomes no longer the prison, but the portal to life for us. That's why the, in the Old Testament, water is chaos, right? And that there's an ordering of water. I mean, this is Exodus. This is uh, Leviathan of uh, Jonah. This is also the Psalms. Very much, you know, uh, why there's always this talk about being in high water, you know, water and the, the chaos of water. Um I mean, I was just around the Gulf and just looking out on the water, just like, yep, that's scary. <laughs> I may have to answer a call here. <laughs> Hello, this is Reed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't want to go keep going. 
David, have I confuzzled you? Yeah. Do you want me to go for it again or just forget about it? I'm gonna I'm gonna just roll. It's fine. It's okay if I don't understand. You know? It is. There's many times where I don't understand. But, you know, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him for Galilee to Jerusalem who are now to be his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. I, it, to me it just flows. I agree with you. I, I don't need to add to that. And as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not let thy holy one see corruption. It all just flows quite well for me. I, I don't need to work it hard. Sorry. I, well, <laughs> I don't think I'm working it hard. I think I'm trying to deal with why he's, in his argument, why he's using that text. Well, it just seems to me he's using that text because of his audience. Right. So. His, his whole argument, his whole argument seems to me to be, you know. But I don't think he's just copying and pasting these things because he says, oh, thou art my son today, I have begotten thee. That sounds good. That supports what my argument is. He's drawing upon the entire narrative of the second psalm to support what he's saying. Sure. So, so is the sure. gospel writers about theophany. So to me, I'm mm -hmm. trying to understand why that would be tied into baptism and also resurrection of our Lord. That's all. Yeah, but baptism just, that's what confuses me because I don't see anything about baptism here. So I, I, I don't get that. So then you're, because the gospel writers use the same verse. Yes. I know and they Paul did. used that same verse for a different reason. Yes. So I'm trying to understand what the difference is and if there is a difference. Okay. Okay. So let's go to bodily resurrection. Uh, what are the holy and sure blessings of David? Well, back up for a minute. <laughs> Baptism is about resurrection. Baptism right. is about death and resurrection. And, and, and Paul is talking to these folks about death and resurrection. And the second psalm is pretty clearly about death and resurrection. So it's not surprising to me he uses the same text. Right, that's what I said. Oh, it is, is that what you said? <laughs> yes. Okay. You're having a violent agreement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Okay. So are we Are we good to go to th verse 34? Sure we are. You're just a lot smarter than I am, and so I can only do it simple. I can only do it real simply. You're... No, I think you did a better job of summarizing what I was trying to get out. Oh, okay. Well, see, I'm learning. There you go. Verse what, what are, in verse 34, the holy and sure blessings of David? Is the promise of the eternal kingdom? Yeah, the son who sits on the throne and 
Yeah. yeah, that's what I would associate it with. Yeah. Does and I don't have in front of me where this where this quote comes from. I think it's Isaiah fifty five verse three, or at least I just Googled the that particular <laughs> thing and it's showing up uh this verse in Acts and then Isaiah chapter fifty five verse three. I'm so glad you Googled that. If you did that off the top of your head, I was hanging up. <laughs> no, no, I, I have a good memory, but not that good. <laughs> Interesting. The language, at least the RSV, does not reflect the, the verse 34 language. So, I, so in 34, it says, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then Isaiah 55, 3 says... I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Hmm. Which I can see why it would associate. To, I mean, I think we're basically, without having to, obviously this is a direct quote, and this also brings up issues and quotes of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, of what exactly, the versions that they're, or what they're quoting. Sure. Uh, Septuagint, because sometimes they're quoting Septuagint, or even Aramaic versions, so... Uh, I think us getting the main point, the holy and sure blessings of David is the eternal covenant that God made that the house of David would bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah would be of, from David. And of course, the people who translated Isaiah 55 are not the same people that That's translated true. Acts, right? right. So yep. they could be looking at exactly the same phrase in the original and and then the next, uh, this, is, this is the challenge of reading translations like this too, because part of the importance of the tradition or the ways in which reading scripture is also the intertextuality of the Old Testament and New Testament. What I mean by that is how they're so closely woven together that if you can't, I mean, I don't read Greek well, but reading translations so often you can miss some really important things because well this is probably the issue with like the nrsv or the niv dynamic equivalent sometimes means that you're getting dynamically dynamically bad translations where you're losing like the christic nature of the psalms because you want to be gender uh, neutral and yet it really does need to say, uh, be specific about um, the gender in that context because it is about uh, about Jesus and not about mankind as man and woman. Dynamic obscurity. Say that again. Sorry. Dynamic obscurity. Dynamic obscurity. <laughs> so Psalm 16 is the another psalm that he is mentioning in uh, 35, verse 35. Well, I'm not, I also pulled up Psalm 2 on, I mean, not Psalm 2, but Acts 2 on my phone. Uh-huh. And um, looking at Peter's sermon there, and he covers very much the same territory. Um, you know, therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let your holy one see corruption and uh you know men and brethren let me tell you david was dead and buried and his tomb is with us 
but he was a prophet, and so he was speaking about Christ. So what does that tell you? Or at least it's, it tells me something, but what, what, what do you think the significance of them sharing that same reasoning? Well, it makes it seem as though it was a widely held understanding within the early church. It's you the can right way. Right. It's fat, you, you are seeing the paths of interpretation developing already with Peter and Paul having some of the same interpretations of the text. I can imagine, I mean, we, we've talked about how Paul spent uh, three years, it talks about in Arabia, and then he spent time uh, with Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem, you know, making sure that he can basically get apostolic stamp of approval. Um, and some of that I think is actually that they were having Bible study, that worship, fasting, uh, and Bible study, and basically kind of doing the road to Emmaus event for much of the early life of the church where they read scripture that they'd always read. And now they have the eyes of Christ um, and the empowerment of the Holy spirit to be able to discern and understand uh, those scriptures. So when they read the Psalms, especially uh, and they read, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy one to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. They're going to think, well, whose soul is not left in Sheol? Who is the Holy one who didn't see corruption? Of course, Jesus. So, and as Paul and Peter both say, uh, that wasn't David. So David is obviously talking about, this is obviously a messianic passage and who else, but in Jesus Christ is this fulfilled is the sayings of the prophets fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ. So something that's important about the understand the Jewish understanding of the Messianic ages, the forgiveness of sins. And what do you all make of 30 verse 39? Because I think you see proto Paul uh, already showing himself here by proto Paul. I mean, what many of us in a lot of Western Christianity uh, associate with Paul. Yeah, the inadequacy of the law. Yes. Free, uh, I'll just read verse 39. And by him, everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. What does that mean? I think you're getting a foreshadowing here, right, of Romans. And his argument, Romans, Galatians, what is the role of the law of Moses for Christianity? This is a serious challenge. If this is the fulfillment, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, then why or how is he the fulfillment of the prophets? What is wrong with the law of Moses? It's good, but it's too little of the right thing. <laughs> Expound, Reed. What do you mean? <laughs> Well, I mean, I always think of the illustration that um, I think St. Irenaeus used where he said that you know, the Old Testament, or the, not the Old Testament, but the law was like a torch in the night, whereas the coming of Christ was like the rising of the sun. Right. And so in a dark night, 
a torch is a real blessing. But once the sun comes up, it becomes kind of a nuisance and you, you know, you toss it aside because the, the, the torch sun. was the right kind of thing, but it was just anticipating the real light, which is the sun. Right. I think this, this feeds into, in the early chapters of Romans, um, Paul's argument about what uh, the law of Moses, how it functions or what it does. Uh, it reveals sin, right? It's good at uh, saying what's wrong. So it's kind of like, um, this is me freestyling an analogy here. It's kind of like your conscience saying, no, you shouldn't do that. And you know that you shouldn't do that. But there's nothing about your conscience that is necessarily going to change your will. It's just the no. Right? The law of Moses is, uh, it fulfills its by being a pedagogue. This is also Pauline language, being a schoolmaster uh, and teaching us about things, about who the Messiah, but the law can't give life itself. Yes, there's supposed to be holiness. Yes, you do the obedience to the law and all of that, what that means, but it in and of itself cannot actually provide life in that. And I think you can only come to that conclusion when God himself comes in the flesh and blazes the way back to the heavenly throne so that, and gives life to fallen Adam in the way that the law could never do that. The law couldn't fulfill the law. <laughs> the law could not live a life that Jesus did. Um, there is something, uh, about the the word of God, uh, the, as one scholar called it, enfleshed Torah, actually living the obedient life that Adam and Israel could not do, uh, that gave the life that the Holy Spirit could sanctify. Why his flesh did not see corruption is because he was the Holy One. And then we can share in that. It's something the law could not do. The law could not uh give life and communion with god in the way that god can does that make sense i'm trying to summarize a lot of early uh romans uh and that i really didn't really come with a breakthrough on the book of romans till much later in my life because the book of romans is a maze and i think if you ask the wrong questions of the book of romans or of paul you're going to end up in some cul-de-sacs for a very long time we're going to do that next right yes I hope so. And I believe Good. Reed is going to be our guide in that. Good. Yes, we're tired of me. I'm tired of me. <laughs> no, I just... I, I, I know that you know, that's not what you mean, David. There's, there's, there, there, is, there is something Virgilian about Reed. Uh... There you go. <laughs> well, thank but you. that doesn't mean that you're in uh, limbo, Reed. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're not with the righteous pagans. <laughs> I, I actually understand that illusion. So, yeah. um, no, it actually means it actually means you're in hell and you're going back through again. But that's <laughs> now we're in reincarnation land, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, could I, Father? Yes, isn't please. It like the law can keep you from death, but it cannot give you life. Brilliant. Well, I don't think so, but. Thank you. No, that was pithy. That was great. Yeah, yeah. But still, 
the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. Absolutely. You know, so it's like but the person of God was not uh, present in I, his words. It's like they're signs, but it's not he. It's not him who led uh, an incorrupt life. The deified flesh had not come. Does that make sense? Sure. And I think that that is and even the idea of like that. The not the Holy One not seeing corruption that His flesh was deified and we couldn't even really see it or understand it that in the way that we just saw with the Feast of the Transfiguration that really like I don't know how or why I never really gra understood that fact. <laughs> it's also um, kind of pondering on. Uh, Manna in the desert in the Old Testament kept the body alive, uh, but it did not give life to the spirit, not in the way the Eucharist does. Right. right. Well, and just like that, um, any I of like the resurrections outside of the resurrection of Christ, um, I can say the assumption of the Theotokos later on, uh, in none of the biblical, that they're all going to die. The Theotokos died as well, but that not again. Lazarus was going to die again, even though he was raised from the dead. Um, but there is now, with the resurrection, we're in, we're in a different territory. The fullness has come. The shadows reflect that fullness, but they are shadows. And they're absolutely important, and they're given by God, and they are the law of God. I, I think that's, Paul, like, in Romans, it's not a denigration of Moses, just like in Jesus' ministry and his preaching. It's not a denigration of Moses. It's just nope. the fulfillment because nobody could live with what God outlined. Moses couldn't do it. David yeah. surely didn't do it. Uh, nope. I mean, just go through. None of the prophets were able to do it besides the Holy One. Right. Well, and isn't that part of Paul's argument in Romans? He's saying the law is good and holy and pure, but we are infected by sin and sin demonstrates its very wickedness in that it takes this thing that was good and puts us to death through it because you know it uses the law to enrage us with um with sinful desires yeah romans is i think if you don't so this is how i i've come to appreciate the book of romans you don't have kind of the dogmatic basis of the church in regards to the incarnation and Trinity and how to understand scripture and what that means. I think you're always come to Romans and you'll walk away a little frustrated and confused because if you're coming at it with the, the whole shtick of how most of the kind of Augustinian justification debates go, you're going to end up and that's what I mean in those cul-de-sacs where it's just really confusing. Mm -hmm. And you just yeah. repeat the same. Oh, I mean, oh my goodness. <laughs> and sometimes it's just like, you know, what you need is a different question or you just need to step back and look at it from a different angle. And then it can, there can be a lot of light shed there. But I'm glad we started with Acts <laughs> and not Romans because this text is a lot easier than Romans. Also, I think about the passage in Hebrews here where it talks about uh, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins, and if the sins had 
uh, cleansed the uh, people of their sins, then their consciences wouldn't have continued bothering them. But the sacrifices keep being offered because they're never getting the job done. And that has right. very much of a sense of these things aren't really setting you free, and you probably already know that. Yeah, and it's this is the underlining, I think, too, of the life in Christ is very much empowered by his indwelling in us by the Holy Spirit and our having to imitate him and, and his, I'll use, <laughs> this isn't typical Orthodox language, but a revivication <laughs> uh, of our sanctification of us requires our own mortification and imitation completely of him and that we can't do that. And this is very much underlined by the, the fathers, especially later um, Russians is where I'm mostly of, like, you can do nothing but by God's grace to be able to do it. So in some ways it's like, take that reformed. Like <laughs> we agree with you. There's nothing good that we can do outside of Jesus Christ. We just don't have some of the other hangups. Um, but that is all because of the God man, Jesus Christ, who did not see corruption because of his, um, his deified flesh and the fullness that we receive uh, in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit that we receive of his resurrected body and blood. Is there any, um, the last verse there we can, it's 843. So I, I would like us to go ahead and come to a close there, but let's, uh, in verse 40, beware, therefore, lest there come upon you what is said in the prophets, behold, scoffers, you scoffers and wonder and perish for I do a deed in your days, a deed you will never believe if one declares it to you. So he goes really heavy on the prophets in order to get their attention. Um, it seemed like it worked because there was a lot of people who were very interested in what they had to say. What do you, what, so just a parting question. What, why in verse 33, they spoke with these and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Why don't they say you should be baptized? It seems like that is the consequence of many of the other sermons. Why here do they just say, continue in the grace of God? Is it they weren't really ready to believe? They were interested? but weren't. I, I think you're on to something there, Reed. Partly yeah. because of verse 41. Yeah. Why Paul says that. He, you know, you can read a crowd sometimes, but like, I think something... <laughs> Or maybe they heard them in the tavern the night before. It may simply be a matter of timing. He's been his whole argument has been that uh, I, I've been moving around by the way, trying to stay in the light, and I can't do it anymore because the sun finally went down. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 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 his whole argument has has been, you know, that this is in the tradition. Okay, we're not coming out of left field. We're not making anything up out of whole cloth. All right, it's in the prophets. It's in the Psalms. It's in the history. It's all there. Okay, and that it's very much of, you know, Paul saying, you know, what we are teaching you, we are one of you. We are all in this together. So, you know, 
continue, right? Continue in it. That's kind of what his argument is. That's kind of the bottom line of the way he's been arguing the whole, the whole evening or whatever is, you know, continue, continue. I think this is also, as I'm reading the next few verses, a lot of this also has to do with the fact that there is, that we see in Paul and Barnabas's, Barnabas's ministry. Um, so far, we've seen a lot of success. We've, we've obviously seen Jews who re rejected this message. We've seen a lot of success with mm -hmm. uh, Jews, and we're going to see here how they they don't have as much success, uh, but they have, with the Jews, they have success with the Gentiles, um, which is a fascinating thing. Well, we should probably call it an evening as we've gone about an hour or so. So I am going to stop the recording unless somebody, does anyone have any parting things to say? Not on I the see, record. Not on the record. <laughs>